I'm Pastor Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be sharing with you today. Would you pray with me as we uh, continue to worship God? God, we thank you so much that we can gather here so freely, so publicly. God, we thank you for providing this place for us. And God, we ask that you would help us to use this entire hour for your glory. Uh, That as we sing, that as we uh, worship you through our singing, through our fellowshipping with one another, through our giving of offerings, through our studying of the word, that you would free us from distractions, that you would keep our focus on you, that you would show us ways that we can learn from your words and apply it to our lives uh, this week, today. In your name, amen. So just out of curiosity, do we have any soccer fans here today? A few, what, there was one, a couple people waving. Uh, let's get a little messy for a moment. Yeah, that was, that was cheesy. You knew you, you were in for something cheesy when I walked up here though, right? Uh, and I know he's kind of a bad word right now after what happened on Tuesday uh, in Philadelphia, but if we can move past that for just a moment, uh, for those of you that don't know, this past July, uh, Lionel Messi, an Argentinian player, made his major league soccer debut Uh, with Inner Miami, the Miami's professional soccer team. Uh, Messi's no rookie, though. He's considered to be the greatest soccer player in the world. He's been playing professionally for almost 20 years. It's actually kind of wild when you watch a game. A lot of the people he's playing against were born after he started playing professionally. Uh, He's scored over 700 goals, has won the World Cup, has set all sorts of records, uh, and in a shocking move, turned down massive offers from teams around the world to join what was, a month ago, the worst team in the U.S., Inter-Miami. Seriously. He arrived uh, in Miami on Tuesday, July 19th. Two days later, he made his debut Uh, in a game after halftime, immediately scored. There he is celebrating. Uh, Then he scored again in the final seconds of the game, clinching the win for Miami. And they have been winning every game since. Last night they won the League's Cup. Like it's just wild watching. This past Tuesday, he came to Philadelphia with Miami to play against Philadelphia Union. Some of you are nodding. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently our fans all booed him, didn't work. (laughs) He might thrive on that, I don't know, because uh, we lost four to one, and here's the deal. Philadelphia is a really good soccer team. Like we came in second place last year. Our team is good. Like a lot lot of us were thinking, this is the week messy now. And uh, it just threw him off. And and here's what's amazing, Uh, this guy, has changed the face of American soccer in just the space of a few weeks, right? That, that he uh, almost immediately subscriptions to watch the Major League Soccer games. It's a paid thing, subscribe through Apple. Uh, more than doubled within a week or two of his arrival. Every game he plays in sells out. The game at Union, Philadelphia, Tuesday night, those seats normally go for dozens of dollars, it was, it was sold out, and the cheap seats were a few hundred. They sold standing room-only tickets 
You had to stand the whole time. Like, just to be clear, they were like, we got aisles. We can fit people here for hundreds of dollars each. Right, like the the commentators last night in the game against Tennessee said it's the messy effect that Tennessee's stadium made 15 million more in ticket sales last night than they normally do for a game because Messi was there. I say all that because this guy has like totally changed it up in the space of a month. He's like the Taylor Swift of soccer. You get it? And I say all that because we're looking at another disruptor today in 2 Kings. Another guy who showed up and completely changed it up for the Israelites. We've been working our way through 1 and 2 Kings over the course of this summer. It's it's a history of all of the kings of Israel and Judah. After Solomon, the nation fractured into two, and there's this record of each of the kings of the two resulting nations in the centuries after. And what's fascinating is every single king's reign is summed up with one phrase. Either he did what was good in the eyes of the Lord, or he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Which is kind of intimidating to have your entire life summed up with one sentence. Right? And yet, isn't that the one that really matters? The question that really matters. Did we do what was good in the eyes of the Lord or did we do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? And today we're looking at Hezekiah. Uh, He has the longest story of any of the kings in the divided kingdoms. His story clocks in at 95 verses. And not only that, It's retold almost verbatim in the book of Isaiah and 2 Chronicles expands on it and dives into his story as well. He's a big deal. In 2 Kings chapter 18, it starts off saying this, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, began to rule over Judah in the third year of King Hoshea's reign in Israel. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. The comparison to David is a big deal. There's only one other king that gets to be compared To David, Dr. Susie Park wrote in her commentary, the comparison to this beloved monarch is close to fawning praise, right? That readers thousands of years ago would have been like, he was like who? Like this is high, high praise. Verse four, he removed the pagan shrine, smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. See, there had been some previous attempts at reform, right? That, that in the mix of so many evil kings, there were a few good ones that had tried to pursue reforms, but nobody went as far as Hezekiah did. And this bronze serpent is just one example of how he went several steps further than any of his other predecessors who had tried to bring reform. If, if you're not familiar with the bronze serpent, in Numbers chapter 21, 
It records a story of when the Israelites were being judged by God. And so God sent poisonous snurpins. Snurpins? <laughs> I wanted to ignore it, but I was like, ah, y'all heard it. Nate heard it. It's going to come up on Tuesday. Poisonous serpents went in the camp and began biting people, and they're dying, right? And, I mean, that's my nightmare. I hate snakes. That's not a wimpy thing. Indiana Jones and me, we got that in common. Uh, so I think, anyways, they're coming in. People are dying. Moses goes to God in prayer. Scott, please help us. Please forgive us. Like, God, save us. And so God gives him these instructions. He says, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Everyone that is bitten and looks at the serpent will be healed. Which is an interesting miracle. And so in this moment, this was object of salvation. But over the years, this object of salvation had become an idol. That this relic that, of course, you had preserved, Moses made it had become something they were giving sacrifices to, that they were worshiping instead of God. And so Hezekiah, man, you have to understand, like on the one hand, it must have been so difficult to destroy something made by Moses. An important moment in their history. This relic of an incredible moment of delivery from God, and yet Hezekiah saw this good thing had become a bad thing, and he destroyed it. It goes on to say in verse 5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. Second Chronicles expands on the beginning of his reign uh, in chapter 29, verse 3. It says, in the very first month, of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah reopened the doors of the temple of the Lord and, re and repaired them. He summoned the priests and Levites to meet him at the courtyard east of the temple. He said to them, listen to me, you Levites, purify yourselves and purify the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defiled things from the sanctuary. It's wild to think about, right, for a moment here. Just, they had to reopen it because they had stopped using it. The temple is shut down, and it's full of defiled things. There were pagan articles that had been in there. And Second Chronicles goes on to describe it was a 16-day process to both purify these priests that were being called back into action and to purify this building so that they could again use it for worship with God. The surprising thing is the nation was excited for Hezekiah's reforms. There was, there was a, a surge of thrill as people dove back into this faith. It was an incredible time. In verse 21 of 2 Chronicles 31, it says, in all that he did in the service of the temple of God and in his efforts to follow God's laws and commands, Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. As a result, he was very successful. I love that phrase, Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. Just think about those words for a moment. What an incredible legacy for him to leave. Right, that thousands of years later, we are celebrating these words that Hezekiah sought his God wholeheartedly. 
Everything in him, pursue God. And, and it's easy to miss thousands of years later just how dangerous some of the things he undertook was. Right, that as this 25-year-old guy taking the reins of the kingdom, it wasn't just a slam dunk that what he says goes. In fact, if we look over history, right, history is full of wars fought over religion. That the people happened to be excited about this, but he didn't know that. We know it because we've read the story. But for him, what he knew is that a lot of kings had been assassinated before him. The shortest reign was seven days, King Zimri executed him. Man, if people didn't like what the king was doing, sometimes their own family members would put him to death to try and take the throne. That he knew changing up religion, throwing out practices that a lot of the population had embraced could put a huge target on him. And yet he pursued God wholeheartedly. Hezekiah sought God. And then, in the 14th year of his reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came with his army and began conquering towns in Judah. Hezekiah scraped together all the wealth he could find. The nation was not as rich as it had once been under Solomon. He scraped all the wealth he could, including even taking the gold off the doorknobs to the temple to put together 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold to pay a settlement to Sennacherib. What was supposed to happen is he was going to give them all of this wealth and then they would be released. They wouldn't be conquered. Well, Sennacherib took the money and then declared, I'm conquering you anyway. I'm coming in. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 It says, when King Hezekiah heard their report, the the messengers coming back saying this, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and went into the temple of the Lord. He went immediately to prayer. And over the course of his life, if you were to read all of the passages in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings and in Isaiah, you would see every time something happened, good or bad, Hezekiah goes to prayer. Oftentimes in the temple. In good times or bad, he consistently turned to God. He also, in this moment, sent a message to the prophet Isaiah going, hey, we got problems. And Isaiah messaged back in verse uh, 6, say to your master, to uh, King Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says, do not be disturbed by this blasphemous speech against me from the Assyrian king's messengers. There's verses and verses where these Assyrians are just mocking the Israelites and mocking God and saying, you don't stand a chance. Just like we have conquered all of these other nations and their gods, we're going to conquer you. And so Isaiah says, don't be disturbed by this blasphemous speech. Listen, I myself will move against them. This is God speaking. And the king will receive a message that he is needed at home so he will return to his land where I will have him killed with a sword. Sure enough, Sennacherib got word that armies from Ethiopia were attacking another part of his kingdom. And so he made the decision, I'm going to need to move my troops there to deal with this situation. Uh, But before he does this, he sends a message to Hezekiah. It's just kind of like a, hey, by the way, 
FYI, you are not getting off. I am coming back. And he sends this big, long letter going, hey, we're going to be checking out of here in a day or two, but I don't need it going to your head. Like, you did not talk me out of this. I have a little tiny situation over here, and we're coming back, and we're going to destroy you. We're going to destroy your house. We're going to destroy your animals. We're going to, we're, everything that you get, we're going to destroy it. We're just going to, de- and he goes, and we're going to do it just like we have all of these other nations. 2 Kings 19, verse 14 says, After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. I love the image of Hezekiah spreading this letter out for God to see. Right, that I think sometimes it's easy for us to feel a distance between us and God that sometimes the ancients demonstrate is not there. Right, that for Hezekiah, he knew God was present. He knew God was with him. And in that place, and his response was to take the letter, lay it out, and go, would you look at this? Read it. Do you see what this guy is saying about you? Do you see what he's saying about us? Like, I just love the image of that he had this intimacy and this closeness with God that he's just pouring it out and putting it there and going, read this letter. He knew God was there with him. And he showed God what troubled him. Look at how directly he praised God in those verses, but also how directly he tells God to act. It continues in verse 17. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all of these nations, and they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them, but of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Rescue us. The kingdoms of earth will know that you alone are God. We're going to come back to this prayer in a few moments. But first, 2 Kings records something incredible that happened that night before Sennacherib's armies could leave. It says in verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. That's a lot. Some big numbers. Uh, In fact, some people have stumbled over these numbers, right? Did did God really kill that many people? Is that that right? And, And granted, Assyria was incredibly evil, and the story repeatedly blasphemed God uh, from their end, but it's still shocking. In fact, this is the largest number killed in the Old Testament. Uh, Here's the thing, though. 
Uh, thousands of years ago, an army, an army of that size today is not so big. But thousands of years ago, that's shockingly large. And so scholars for a long time have struggled with, was it really this big? Or did the writer exaggerate the numbers? In recent decades, we've been able to understand some more of these ancient languages and begin to get some additional light on some of these words. And one of the things that was discovered is the word aleph that's translated thousand here uh, could be used a few different ways. We're not confident that it actually means a thousand. In fact, there's a lot of situations where it's used to describe a family or a unit, right? That perhaps this is saying 185 units of soldiers were killed in the night, explaining why there were still so many soldiers around the next day to discover all these bodies. It's also frequently uh, translated as general, right? That maybe it's saying 185 generals were slaughtered in the night, and when the soldiers woke up in the morning and discovered so much of their leadership was dead, it was overwhelming. It was shocking, these bodies everywhere. Whatever the case is, whichever it was, it was clearly a divine intervention, right? Whether it was 185,000, whether it was 185 units, whether it was 185 generals, God clearly acted in that moment. It then continues in verse 37. One day while Sennacherib was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sharazer, bitter about the names they gave him, uh, killed him with their swords. They then escaped to the land of Ararat, and another son, Asarhaddon, became the next king of Assyria. Uh, historians believe that what happened there was that Sennacherib had made the decision to bypass his older son and name this younger son as his successor. And the older sons were not happy about it, tried to lead a coup, killed him, didn't get the support from the people and still had to flee. Whatever the case is, God had prophesied that he would go home and be killed by the sword. And these sons inadvertently became the tools of fulfilling God's prophecy. But our focus isn't Sennacherib's choices about who would succeed him, is it? It's Hezekiah's choices and what we can learn from them. Hezekiah was not perfect. Right, that if you were to dive into all those passages, you'd find some examples of his imperfections. But we can still learn a lot from him because of his commitment to God. Particularly, he was a man of prayer. And I want to dive back into that one prayer that I mentioned before. The one in particular, the one where he had laid out the letter uh, before God. And there's three things that I think we can learn from his prayer. The first is this, that we are to praise God. That when we pray, we should open with praise. It's really kind of incredible. When you look at his prayer, here's how it started. O Lord, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Even in this terrifying moment, Right, and Hezekiah was afraid. That's why he went to the temple. That's why he laid the letter out. Because he, he, there was fear in him. He goes, even in this terrifying moment, Hezekiah opened his prayer 
with praise. He directed his thoughts to God's majesty, to God's power. Dr. David Lamb, uh, his commentary is one of our recommended books this summer. He's been here to speak in the past in our adult Christian ed. He wrote in his commentary about this that praise shifts our focus from ourselves and our problems to God and his sovereignty. Right, that Hezekiah understood that in this moment of fear, by focusing on God's power and God's sovereignty, his fears would grow smaller. Right, that so often we get wrapped up in our fears and we're so afraid and we're so quick to say, I need help with this, that we don't take a moment to reassure us with, man, who is the God that we follow? The God that we follow is powerful. The God that we follow is sovereign. The God that we follow has control over everything. C.S. Lewis wrote, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. He goes on to say, uh, quote, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capricious minds praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. C.S. Lewis's point is that as we become more and more Christ-like, that as we become more and more uh, embodying the heart of God, praise comes easily. The more we do it, the more we flex that muscle, the more natural it becomes. Praise reflects our love for God, our dependence on him, our trust in him. It reflects our focus. And as C.S. Lewis said, we praise what we love, right? Like how often have we seen something, or all the lists that C.S. Lewis gave, the team that we're excited about, and we grab something, you gotta see this. We praise what we love. And every prayer should begin with praise, especially when we are in distress, because it shifts our focus from fear to God and his power. The second thing we see in Hezekiah's prayer is that we should be bold in our prayer. Right, that if you look, look at some of the words uh, he uses in 16 and 9. He says, bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. And then later he says, now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. Look at his words, bend down, listen, open your eyes, rescue us. Hezekiah is being incredibly direct, almost commanding God to act, right? That there's a part of me that's a little bit uncomfortable with like, is he telling God what to do? Like, can we do that? Is, is he supposed to be wording it that way? And yet there's this fascinating moment when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. And he modeled what we now call the Lord's Prayer to them. Uh, they had, the disciples had seen Jesus praying daily and regularly. And even though they were good Jewish boys, like they had grown up knowing how to pray, there was something about the way Jesus prayed that was different. That made them go, man, whatever is going on, Jesus, please teach us how to do that. 
And so it says in Luke 11, verse 2, Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. He opened with praise as well. There's a lot of similarities between his prayer and Hezekiah's. And then he says, give us each day the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those against us. Don't let us yield to temptation. Jesus talks in the same way to God, doesn't he? Give us, forgive us, don't let us. It's bold. I don't like the word commanding. Some people have used that. I I think it's more of a bold, it's a directness, right? Because we don't command God, but God does want us to come to him directly, right? God knows everything that's going on in our lives. He knows everything that we're thinking, everything inside us. Yeah, I said everything. Just, this whole summer, I didn't mispronounce anything. Nate comes back one time. All right, people back me up. It's been incredible. The, uh, God knows everything, right? We can fake it with people. We can fake it when we come here. We can say a lot of words. We can hide a lot of things, but God knows it all. And Hezekiah is modeling, man, there's a boldness. If we are afraid, just say it, right? If we're worried, just tell God, God, help me with this, right? That we don't need to flower it up with a lot of other language. Just be direct, be bold, be confident in your prayers to God, Be direct with your concerns, your fears, your need for help, your need for forgiveness. And have the confidence that God is hearing you in the same way that he heard Jesus and in the same way that he heard Hezekiah. Finally, I think the third thing that we learn from Hezekiah's prayer is to listen to God. To listen to God. Where does it show Hezekiah listening? It doesn't say that directly, but we see it through his actions, right? Through his obedience, through his repeated going to God, through his time in the temple, we see it in his demeanor, that he starts off this moment afraid, going to God in fear, but at the end of it, confident, content, at peace, because he's been in the presence of God, because he's heard God speak. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, are you taking time to listen to God? It's so easy for us to talk at God, but are we taking time to listen to him, to hear him back? And, and you might be going, so how do we listen? I think there's a few ways that we can listen through, through reading his word, right? That we have God's word in the scriptures and are we taking time to read those, to listen through the word of God and reflect on that and allow that to kind of soak into who we are? Are we taking times of silence as we pray and study the word? What do I mean by silence? Uh, one of my favorite parts about the student mission trips especially when I go with middle schoolers, is we always have a time, a quiet time structured in to the day, oftentimes in the morning. And uh, I remember this one year in particular. 
It was a mission trip to Maine, and we were staying at this uh, place, and there was a giant lawn, and, and I sent, we sent all these, you know, seventh and eighth graders out, and they spread all over because they're supposed to be by themselves, and they got their Bible, and they got their notebook, and, you know, it's 30 minutes of quiet time. And we start the quiet time, and five minutes later, uh, inevitably, some middle schoolers would show up and be like, McNutt, we're done. <laughs> and, and I would always be like, you're really not. And they'd be like, and they would open up their notebook and show me, I am done. I have filled out the answers. I'm ready to go. And I'm like, but you're not done. It's still quiet time. And now you're disrupting my quiet time. Uh, go back. And they're like, what do I do? I'm like, just sit there. Just sit there and be quiet. Read the passage some more if you don't know what else to do. But just sit there and be quiet. And what, what I loved about it is by the fifth day of that, these same kids would be surprised the 30 minutes was already up, right? That this is a discipline we can learn. That, that every, our culture is so noisy, right? There, there's never a moment where we don't have headphones on or some screen going or something going. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone, right? That I have audiobooks queued up for when I'm in the car. If I'm waiting in line at the supermarket, I'm checking the headlines. Like there's, we always have noise coming at us. So it's becoming increasingly in our culture unusual to just sit in silence, but that's where God can move in our hearts. That's where God can bring things that we've studied in his word to the surface, where he can guide us through our conscience and through our heart to what it is that he wants us to learn, what it is he wants us to take away from those quiet times. That we can hear God in those moments of silence. We also hear God through the teaching and words of others who love God and pursue Christ-likeness. Listening is a discipline that takes time to develop, but it's an exciting one. And I would challenge you, if it's not a part of your prayer times now, start, start small with a few minutes, but gradually build on that. Taking time to not just listen through the word, not just listen through teaching of others, but through the silence as well, allowing God to move. And as you flex this muscle, it'll become easier and more natural as time goes on. I want to challenge you this week as you reflect on the example of Hezekiah and as you consider prayer, that you be intentional about opening every prayer with praise. That you take time to be bold in how you approach God and direct in how you communicate with him and that you take time to listen Take time of silence, whether it's a few minutes or 30 minutes, and you can build up to it. But I would challenge you to learn from Hezekiah's example and instill some of the habits of prayer that he had into your life today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom in, in preserving the story of Hezekiah. We thank you, God, for how you moved in his life and in the kingdom how you used him to bring, around, bring about change for the nation. And God, we ask that you would make us like him, that we, would, that we would praise you, that we would use our mouths to give glory to you in every time that we communicate with you. God, we ask that you would give us boldness and confidence as we come to you. And God, we ask that you would, that you would help us to have listening hearts. 
that we would be able to embrace the silence that you speak to us in. For your glory in your kingdom, amen.